Hey, Pastor Stephen here. Welcome to the Abundant Springs podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to check us out online at AbundantSprings.Church. And now, on to this week's message. I wanted to start out by talking to you and, and sharing with you a story about this little girl. This one little girl, she, she crawled up on her grandpa's lap and she cuddled close and, and looked up at her grandfather with her, her big blue eyes and, and she said, Grandpa, can you please make a frog sound? Now, anybody with kids or grandkids, you know, sometimes kids make the weirdest requests, right? And so grandpa thinks for a second, he goes, okay, ribbit, ribbit. And the girl just gets super excited and she jumps off his lap and she goes screaming into the kitchen, mom, we're going to Disney World. We're going to Disney World. We're going to Disney World. And the, the mom, she's like, what is, what is going on? Just, just calm down. Why, what makes you think that we're going to Disney World? And this little girl just gleaming with joy blurts out at the top of her lungs, you told dad we can go to Disney World when grandpa croaks. <laughs> Family's messy, Right? Family is a messy, messy thing. And, and sometimes we try to lessen the mess. We try to hide the mess, try to clean it up, try to make ourselves feel a little bit more comfortable. But then we come into the holidays, right? And when you come to the holidays, all of a sudden, all that messiness, the family awkwardness, it's on display. For some of us, it's because the people we avoid are suddenly right there. For others of us, it's actually the people who aren't there that make the holidays awkward or difficult. Maybe we remember somebody that's not with us anymore. Or, or maybe it is that, that we're not home for the holidays, whether it's because of finances or just because of time, work, whatever it may be, estrangement. There's so many things that can make family time, the holidays, awkward, messy. But the fact of the matter is, is that Every family is messy. Every family. And no matter how much we try to hide it, no matter how much we try to pretend that it's not, family is messy. And what I love so much is that Jesus didn't try to hide the messiness in his family. In fact, when we come to the New Testament, it's the part of the Bible that was written after Jesus' death and resurrection. There's this guy named Matthew who wrote an account of Jesus' life, and he actually starts the whole thing off by giving us Jesus' family tree. He's like, forget starting by talking about Jesus himself. We're going to talk about his family before we even tell you why this guy's all that important. And he doesn't mince words either. He doesn't say, you know, this guy here, there's that story back there that that sheds a bad light on. We're going to kick that guy out of the family tree. No, he adds people in. He he makes sure everybody is on display. And I, I love it. I love that God shows the mess that led to our Messiah, to the Christ Jesus. Now, most of us, most of us have some baggage when it comes to family. Right? Maybe, maybe it comes down to mistakes that were made while you were raising your family. Instances in your mind that you think of, you're like, man, why did I do that? And what, what effect has that had on the kids? Or, man, look at where my kids are at now. Many of us in marriages, right? 
failed marriages, stressed out marriages, fights in marriages. Or maybe you're one of those people that feels like your parents messed you up so badly that there's no hope for you in life. Right? We actually see this all the time. For the last 10 years, there have been two generations that have been battling it out in the, me- in the media. It's my generation, the millennials, versus the boomers, right? Now, I'm not going to ask you to, to say which one you're, you're on or anything like that, but here's what we've been seeing. We've been seeing the millennials running around going, the boomers messed up the world for us. Our lives are messed up. We have no way of getting ahead in life because of those evil boomers. You know, they, they, uh, they, they raise the housing costs so I can't get a job. They, they refuse to retire so I can't move up in my position. They want me to work nine to five. What is with that? Like, what is with these people? And then you have the boomers on the other hand. They're like, look at my messed up kids. They are so lazy. They're all moving back home. They want to live with me for free. What is their problem? You know, they're so sensitive about everything. They're so worried about all these things. In fact, my life is messed up because of these millennials. And we see this getting played out in the media all the time. We just want to blame others. We want to use them as an excuse, right? It's my kids have messed things up for me or my parents messed things up for me. And family carries a lot of baggage. Last week, we talked about Abraham. He's one of the, the first people in gene, Jesus's uh, genealogy that we looked at last week. And we talked about his difficulties with not taking things into his own hands. You know, he had trouble fully trusting God's promises early on in his life. And this week, we're going to fast forward through time, and we're going to come to an individual, another messy character in this list, named King David. King David. Now, anybody that grew up in uh, going to Sunday school or children's church or any of these types of things, or your parents read a lot of Bible stories to you, you might remember that, that God calls David a man after his own heart. And so why on earth is Pastor Stephen bringing up a man after God's own heart as a messy person In the Bible, how how does that make any sense, right? But while David truly was a man after God's own heart, he passionately loved and desired to follow God. He made a lot of mistakes. In fact, I'm willing to bet that if any one of us met David on the street and were today and were told what he had done in his lifetime and what his family was like, we would be like, you are one despicable human being. You are a horrible, horrible, messed up person. The very least, he wasn't a great family man. So we're going to look a little bit at, at David's life and his family today. But first, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just ask right now that you will ready our hearts to receive what you want to say to us today. Every one of us is coming to this place in a different life situation, with different family baggage, with different hurts, with different emotional pains that are holding them down. And today I ask, Lord God, that that you'll take these feeble human words that I'm going to speak and that you'll make them something truly worthwhile to the hearts of all of us through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
So today, uh, the story that we're going to find about David's life is found in the historical narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel. They're books that uh, are found in the first part of the Bible. It's the Jewish scriptures, or what we as Christians call the Old Testament. And uh, 1 Samuel is full of all kinds of very interesting things about David. And we're not going to get into all of those types of things. We can go ahead and take that off the screen right now. We don't need that yet. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we're, we're jumping the gun a little bit here. It's all right. Most of us know this anyways. <laughs> but if, if, when we're in 1 Samuel, what we see is David goes through a lot of rough circumstances to get to the point where he is made king, where most of us know him the best as King David. And when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 25, something that we immediately find out is that David's marital life is a little bit weird. See, David got married to King Saul's daughter after he killed Goliath. You remember David and Goliath, all that kind of stuff. So he gets married to Saul's daughter, but then Saul decides that he's jealous of David, tries to kill David. David runs away, so Saul goes, well, my daughter's sitting here now. I'll give her to someone else. So now David is divorced, sort of, and, uh, and, and alone. So he goes out and he finds another wife. And then we come to, to 1 Samuel 25, and, and he takes a second wife named Abigail. So now he's got two wives. He's divorced once. It's a messy situation. Like, I'm not going to go into it, but it's a messy situation. And then we move over to the second part of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we, we see this. Now you can put that up. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Let's stay there for a second. So here's David, a warrior king, at a time and a place where kings would go out with their armies to war. And we're specifically told that David sends his army out to fight, and he's like, you know what, I'm just going to chill here at home. You guys go and, and do the fighting, and I'm going to shirk my responsibility and not lead you, but I'm just going to stay home. Someone else is going to do it. You can fight my war for me. So we come to verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period, and then she returned home. So let me clear a few things up. We as Westerners, when we hear about someone walking on a roof, we think that's pretty dangerous because we think like these steeped roofs that are made to fight off snow and rain and all of that. But in the Middle East, their roofs are actually flat. It's like another living place. They might have a little tent, a canopy, a bath in the case of Bathsheba on the roof. And so David is walking on this roof and he sees a beautiful naked woman taking a bath. Not my words, God's words. A beautiful naked woman is taking a bath and there is David with two wives and he's like, I'm just going to have a look here. Now, he didn't need to stare at this unknowing woman. Like David is, is a bit of a peeping Tom here, right? It's, it's not a great character trait, but he stares at her and then he goes one step further. He inquires about her. He says, who is this woman? I'm interested in her. 
And what he finds out is that she is a married woman, and in fact, she's married to one of his soldiers who is currently out at battle fighting the war that David is not at. So at this point, any sane human being would say, oh, well, that's nice. Good to see you. I'm staying off my roof from now on, and just leave it at that. But that's not what David did. He was like, I got two wives, but this lady's really beautiful. Come here, lady. And he sleeps with her. It's not great. He shirks his responsibility to his family, to his wives, to this married woman as her king, because who's going to say no to the king? And to this woman's husband as his king. And as the story goes, Bathsheba ends up getting pregnant. Problem is, her husband is away at war, so how'd she get pregnant? Everyone's going to know. She's not going to keep quiet because then she'll take all the disgrace on herself. So David starts to freak out and he hatches a brilliant plan. He says, Uriah, I want you to come and report on the war here at home. And so Uriah comes, he gives him his report. David, probably half listening, like whatever, I don't actually care about the report. Hey, good report, Uriah. You know, as a reward for doing such a good job, why don't you go home and sleep with your wife? I think she's lonely. And Uriah's like, I'm not going to do that. Like, all my friends are out there. They're away from home. They're fighting a war. How could I go home, sleep in a warm bed with my wife? You can just kind of feel the dagger unknowingly stabbed into David's back there, right? Like, oh, yeah, I may have already done that. So he starts to panic a bit, but he's like, we got this. He's like, okay, well, you stay for a little bit longer and have a feast with me at least. And so you don't turn down the king when he says, come eat with me. And David gets him drunk, like really drunk. And he figures if, if anyone is going to go against his principles, it's going to be a drunk guy who hasn't seen his wife for a while. And so he gets him drunk. He's like, okay, now you go home and see your wife. And David is so excited in his, himself. He's like, I, I've done it. I've covered up my sin. Until the next day, he opens his front door and Uriah is asleep on the step. Just like, I hate this guy. What is your problem? And so finally, David starts to panic and he writes a letter, seals it, and gives it to Uriah to give to his battle commander. And the letter basically goes something like this. Hey, that guy Uriah that you just sent to me, I want you to put him up at the front of the battle lines where the fighting is the fiercest. And when things get really, really bad... Have the rest of the army just take a couple steps back. And so David essentially gives the order to murder Uriah. How awesome is he? David, ancestor of Jesus, is a messy guy. But it goes further than that. See, he's not just a failure as a king, as a husband, uh, as a human being. <laughs> but, but David's kids were not a happy bunch either. We actually find a couple chapters later in 2 Samuel, uh, this story here. Now, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought that he could never have her. And so he's sharing these feelings with one of his friends, and his friend, being an uh, upstanding young man, helped him plot a plan in which he would convince David to send Tamar to his house, pretending to be sick, get her alone in the bedroom, overpower her, and rape her. And so that's what 
Amnon does to his half-sister, Tamar. And we're told that after he does this, he suddenly is no longer in love with her. He actually then hates her, kicks her out onto the street, completely disgraced. Absalom, her brother, is furious, takes her into his house to care for her. And we're told that David was very mad. And that's all that we're told. And the, the, the implication here, especially with what happens next, is that David didn't really do anything about it. Fast forward a little bit, the same Absalom that is so angry spends two years plotting his revenge, finds a way to get his brothers to a feast that he's having, specifically Amnon, and he tells the servants, listen, when I give the signal, you kill that dirty, rotten scoundrel. And so that's what he does. Later on, Absalom attempts a coup. He tries to take the throne from his father. And in fact, he's so successful at first in his coup that, that David leaves the palace, leaves Jerusalem with a few of his men and runs for his life. And Absalom isn't happy just to take the castle. He's like, we're going after dad. We're going to kill him. Great son. Great family life. And in a weird turn of events, as this massive army goes after David, Absalom gets caught up by the hair in some branches. And one of David's commanders happens to come along and go, hey, look at that. That's convenient. Yoink, dead. This is David's family. Jesus descended from this guy. And yet David isn't hidden. He's actually shown as somebody that despite all of his massive failings was still used by God. Now, I don't know about you. I have four young kids and David's family is not one that if, I, if they were invited to a sleepover that I would be like, yes, that sounds like a great plan. You guys go ahead and sleep over at that guy's house. It's not happening. But that's where Jesus came from. God used him to do great things, and Jesus proudly has David as one of his ancestors. So the fact of the matter is, the thing that we all need to remember is this. Jesus is bigger than your family's failures. Jesus is bigger than your family's failures. It doesn't matter what the failure is. Maybe you were abandoned as a child. Jesus is bigger than that. That doesn't have to define you. Maybe you were abused as a child, and, and not to make light of that at all, I know that it's a hugely impactful, devastating experience, but still, that doesn't have to define you because Jesus is bigger than it. Maybe your kids have left the faith, or they left home, or they won't speak to you anymore, but the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is bigger than that family situation. Whatever the situation is in your family, whatever your family's failures, Jesus is bigger than them all. He can use you despite them. He can keep you going in the face of them because Jesus is bigger than your family's failures. Now listen to me. This doesn't mean that you don't try your best. It doesn't mean that you fathers and you mothers out there go, well, I'm just going to sit back and watch TV all day and ignore my kids because Jesus is bigger than my failures. That's not, that's not what we're saying at all. But the fact is, is that God can use people with messed up childhoods, with messed up marriages and messed up kids. And through prayer and through God's grace, he can even bring healing to the brokenness. He can heal your heart. 
He can heal your emotions because Jesus is bigger than your family's failures. In fact, not only can he redeem your family's failures, but he offers to adopt you into a new heavenly family. He says, listen, I'll fix your earthly family, but I want to tell you about my heavenly family. See, this world, it's a messed up world. It's a broken world. We see that everywhere we go with every hurt that we experience, with every pain that we see, with every news story that we read or that we watch on TV or see on our social media feed. We find out that this world is a place of brokenness. But Jesus came despite our brokenness, despite our rejection of him. In his great love for us, he came and lived a perfect life. God himself humbled himself for us, died on a cross and rose again three days later to pay our sins, those things that have brought us into this brokenness, to provide a doorway out of brokenness into wholeness, back into God's design. And not only that, but into the family of God. As Jesus says, listen, I've borne your sinful identity. Here is my identity as God's son. And you are now a child of the most high God. And he loves you and he gives you his Holy Spirit to seal that into you as a promise of your future inheritance. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear about Jesus being bigger than family's failures, when I hear about Jesus offering forgiveness for brokenness, and then I look around at Pincher Creek, something in my heart says there's a whole lot of people that need Jesus. There's a whole lot of families that need him. There's a whole lot of people that have been using their circumstances as an excuse rather than allowing Jesus to overcome it in their lives and redeem it, not erase it. It's still there. It still happened. It's still evil, but he can redeem it and he can restore you. And imagine what would happen if your neighbors out there if that person at the grocery store checkout or the Walmart or the 7-Eleven or wherever your hangout may be, if the person that you're talking to there, if the person on the street corner, if suddenly they could find out that there is a hope, that there is someone that is bigger than their failures. Can you imagine what that would be? What that would do? Now, it's possible that either someone online or someone in this room here today, that you're thinking to yourself, I need this Jesus. I haven't been serving him, but he, he sounds like someone I can get on board with. I, I need this new family. I need to, to be lifted out of my failings. I, I believe in this Jesus, and I want to follow him. And if that's you, I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a moment before we continue on in our service. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of committing your life to Jesus now, what I'm going to ask so that we don't single anybody out here is that all of us would join in in saying this prayer after me. And, and if you say it and you mean it, just know that you are entering the family of God. So will you all join me in bowing your heads and closing your eyes right now. We're going to pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve the consequence of that sin. but you are greater. I place my trust in you and I proclaim that you are my master and my savior. Lift me out of my brokenness. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me new. I commit to following you all my days.
In Jesus' name, amen. With everyone still heads bowed, eyes closed, if you just prayed that prayer today and meant it from your heart, gave it, gave your life to Jesus, we believe that this is something that, that we don't go on alone, but that the Christian faith is something that is done in community, that we need people to help us and guide us along the way. So if you're online and you prayed that prayer with us today, will you just send us a message on Facebook Messenger so we can get resources in your hands and get you in touch with someone? And if you're here today with no one looking around, can you just slip your hand up so I know who you are can make sure that we get things to you that will help you along this journey as well awesome well everyone you can go ahead and and, and look around now and i want to talk to everyone here today I, I believe that that jesus is as i said bigger than your family's failures and one of the things that happens with family with experiences as we're young as we're going along things that are so central to who we are, is there are moments in our lives, whether they're misunderstandings or truly horrific moments, that implant themselves in our minds and that Satan comes into and plants a lie into that can begin to define and bind who we are. And so the action step that I want to give you all today is we're, we're going to spend just a few minutes here with me leading you through. There's a worksheet on your table in front of you there. It's called uh, Steps to Emotional Wholeness. And this is something that you can take home. It's not something that probably is going to, um, th that you're going to feel like you have answers to, that you hear from God on every single thing right now or anything like that. But I believe that, that this can be a launching point for you to begin a process of emotional healing and wholeness whatever the situation may be. But if there's something that, that has been just consuming you, a bondage in your heart right now, we're just going to take a couple minutes on each of these questions. You can write in here, or you can just read them over, or just pray, whatever, whatever you want to do. And then after this, we're going to have a time of worship and prayer before our potluck here. But right now, I just want us all around this room to pray this prayer. Jesus, will you show me an emotional bondage I have allowed to consume me as a result of my upbringing or of my current family situation or anything else? Maybe it's bitterness, pride, anxiety, depression. There's so many emotional bondages that we can have as a result of something in our past. So just, just ask him in this place right now what that could be. going to go a little faster today than we normally would, but like I said, take this sheet home if you want help working through it. You've got the church email on the back here. This is the beginning of a process, but, but taking that emotion that you've been given or an emotion that you know is, is there, just, just ask Jesus to show you the root memory where that began. Maybe it's a picture, a, an actual memory, um, a word, an instance, a person, but just ask him right now in this place to show you what the root memory of that emotional bondage began.
when you're home, when you're going over this later, if something came to your mind and it wasn't enough for you to locate that memory, just you can ask God what it is about that thing, if, if there's more to it or anything like that to reveal to you where this began. But here's the next thing that we'll ask. Jesus, please help me to feel the emotions that I felt in that memory. I understand that this here could be a, a difficult place to go for some of us. But sometimes it's important when we're dealing with emotional bondage to be able to identify and relate to the emotion that we were dealing with in that moment. And so just ask the Holy Spirit, to ask Jesus to, to help you feel that again so that you can understand where you were at in that place. With that emotion on your mind, ask Jesus to show you where he was in the midst of that situation. Remember, Jesus is bigger than your family's failures, and quite often, we don't recognize that he was present, that he never leaves us, that he's there. So ask him to show you, where, where, where were you, Lord, in that situation? the knowledge that you weren't alone. Ask this, Jesus, show me the lie that was planted into that memory. It's the lie that the enemy used to root something in me.
you have the name of that lie or what that lie was, this is what I want you to, to pray, because Jesus is bigger. Remember, Jesus is bigger. So on the other side of the page there, you're going to see this. In Jesus' name, I reject and renounce and name that lie. Because it's a lie of the enemy. It doesn't need to define you. Give it to Jesus. now ask Jesus to speak the truth into that memory because the truth is always bigger than the lie And with that truth, we're going to declare it today. In Jesus' name, I declare whatever the truth may be into that situation. This time, if there's anyone that you feel like you need to forgive, or if you feel like you need forgiveness, take a moment and ask God for that now. And if, if there's someone that you know that you've hurt that's holding hurt against you that you need to seek forgiveness from, just mark that down. And finally... Ask Jesus, is there anything else that you would like to say to me in response to this? A word, a picture, a thought, a statement. Remember, it's okay if you didn't get anything or get things for certain things or if you feel like there's more to work through. We're here for you. Take the sheet home. Continue to work through it.